Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to episode 61 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have Dr. Gwendolyn Gelsworth back on the show with us today. Gwendolyn is a leader in visual workplace, a best-selling author, and legend in the field of enterprise and operational excellence. Gwendolyn spoke to us in episode 43 about eye-driven leadership and operator-led visual workplace in episode 18. Today, we connect them both and discuss the connected visual workplace. Let's get into the episode. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for joining us again. It's entirely a pleasure, truly so. I appreciate it, Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn, why is creating a visual connected workplace you know, an organization so important? What, what is it that has really highlighted to you as being important in this field in the, over your career? What is, hmm, why is that important? Well, I'm going to sound like a, a Johnny OneNote because I'm going to say the same things that I've said connected to operator-led visuality and also leader, executive mm. leader-led. And that is that visuality creates a language. Visuality creates a language of operations, and it's a physical language. It's a language of visual devices. So what you are doing in a visual workplace is putting in that common language, putting in a common improvement understanding physically. That's what a visual workplace does. In the process of doing that, the visual devices actually dissolve information deficits. Information deficits is the enemy. That means missing answers. That means people struggling to get information that is most of the time very plain and very needed, and yet it's not at their fingertips. So the workplace must be taught to speak. We have to teach it to speak, and we have to teach it our language, the language that we know because we invent the devices. I have a few more, I have a a couple of caveats about that, but that's why the visual workplace is important. It is a physical and also a cognitive connector. It It is the way to connect not just the enterprise, but many sites of the enterprise and your supply chain. It's the way we connect right now because we share a language. We also have an understanding of our common goals, which in a visual workplace are visual. I love that um, piece on language you mentioned, Gwendolyn. Like while you were saying that, I was just thinking of the airline industry where they've got the common language across the whole Mm -hmm. airline industry. Why? So that everyone can work together and, you know, crashes don't happen and all the bad things that can happen too. And really what you're saying is that a workplace that's the same with that, a workplace that isn't visual, really there's no common language that all the key people that need to be involved can be involved rapidly with. Yes, it's very true. Uh, The pre-visual workplace looks extremely ordinary. It's common. um, It is a workplace, with all respect, of neglect. We simply neglect 
the layer that we call the informational landscape. It is absent. We've gotten into the bad habit of letting that information sit in our heads or in binders or, God help us, in the computer. And so it's never at our fingertips. So what what is it that we miss? What we miss is flow. We can't go to work and flow because we're constantly running up against some micro data point that we're missing that stops us and makes us redirect and refine and struggle. So uh, from that point of view, the visual workplace is about flow. And of course, you're going to say rightly that lean is about flow. It is. And lean has some gaps in it that can only be filled through visuality. Lean goes very far. But what lean specializes in is pull, which is flow in the framework of time. It's flow on demand. So we call that pull. It's very important for the business model. It's very important for the intelligence of your operations. But it's different than, substantially different than, visuality. My way of expressing that is two wings of a bird. You can say it yourself. One wing is about pull and time. It is time-based and the other and the critical path. And the other one is about information and information as connection, but also information as adherence, compliance, wholeness, completeness. So the two work together like wings. They, they work simultaneously, each pulling their strength. So the bird can get where it wants to go. Yeah, that's neat. That's Clever a neat bird. analogy. Yeah. <laughs> and well, and the other thing that's really resonated with this conversation is that when I'm involved with a lot of organizations directly, and I've been very fortunate to uh, be a assessor of an excellence model recently with a large organization, well, a few of them. And if one of the common pain points I hear when a frontline employee or even a leadership is not happy is... Frontliner saying, I send something to leadership or I have a problem and no one listens. Mm -hmm. So what he or she is saying to me is, we don't have communication. We don't have language. And then when I talk to a leader in an organization like this, where it's not going so well, I hear the leader saying, the people won't do what I need them to do. And, you know, they're not listening. Again, mm -hmm. they're saying, you know, we haven't got communication. We haven't got language. And whereas what you're saying is that that language is visuality. What is most important? Mm -hmm. What do we need? How do we make it visual? All of a sudden we can talk together. We can work together in an yes. instant. Yes, that's a wide scope. So is there a question underneath that or should I just jump in? Well, I'm really keen to get your view on that, Gwendolyn. Like, have, have you, I'm sure you've had those conversations too before and, and seen that. Is that one of the key aspects you're targeting is, is connecting that language, that common language throughout the workplace. Yes, yes, that it isn't just the key outcome, a, a key outcome, it is the key outcome, without which we don't have an organization, we simply have these segments, they are less visible silos, than we used to talk about when we talked about purchasing, engineering, operations, executive, uh, seek, uh, the, the boardroom, all being different silos. Uh, quality, another silo, maintenance, another silo. But the silos are, uh, the uh, silos exist, visually speaking, in the connection between operations and between people. The main agency in a workplace to this day 
is people. We are shifting over to robots, and that's creating a huge change and really obliterates the so-called need for communication because it's all centrally located in your computer bank. But until that day arrives, humans are of great importance in the positive in terms of their contribution, but also in the negative in that they have to be maintained. They have to be connected with. And the information that the executive leader complains about or even a, a site manager complains about, or the engineering group complains about, is that the messages that they send forth, they think because they are sent, they are received. And if they're received, then they're acted upon, but that's an illusion. George Bernard Shaw has this great quote. He said, communications, communications. The biggest illusion in communication is the belief that it has happened. <laughs> oh, Gwendolyn, you have touched on something so core there, isn't it? Yes. Like, oh, and invariably yeah. in organizations that aren't visual and don't have visual systems, they're depending on hope. I know. They're, they're, hope is their strategy. They're hoping and then they get disappointed. And then after they get disappointed, they get angry or they get annoyed or they start firing people or they start threatening or demanding. I make it a point in all of my work not to use the word communication because there's so many assumptions about it. And because all during the 80s and 90s, all I heard about was, we, we are so poor at communications. You don't even know what that is. What are you communicating? So yes, it is, it's a, we want to replace that with an elegant, doable model, implementable model. What we're putting in place in the workplace are physical devices that hold the message for us. Sometimes that message is about a goal, is about a KPI that needs to go in one direction or the other, but sometimes it's about an attribute. It's about a single attribute that if it isn't there will cause a lot of problems. So we have this thing called Pokeyoke, which is a very high level visual device that builds attributes into the process of work and the Pokeyoke will control a single attribute. And sometimes I've seen as many as nine different visual devices working to make sure a single attribute, a critical attribute that is slippery, that keeps wanting to misbehave, we get it under control. That's what Pokeyoke is for. It's about mastering. Listen to this language. I love this is language that I concocted quite a while ago. Mastering cause on the attribute level. Mastering cause. You know, we, we probably talked about this, but it bears repeating. If you look at the great manufacturers, the great operational systems in the world, they don't tell you what they're really about. But if you look at them carefully, you get it. They're yeah. all about causality. They are about causality. They are about the magical equation of effect is caused. Cause creates effect. And they study that and work it so that it becomes a part of not just their problem solving, but a part of their solutions. So they're not solving a problem. They're creating new causes. And then you make sure those causes are in place through visuality. You embed them. You embed hey. them. Yeah. Oh, it really is such a superb paradigm of thinking and of implementation. And if you adopt it, then you can truly see the workplace differently. 
here's the little equation we use when we're training consultants or trainers. We say, here's what you have to do on the on a macro level. You have to walk into a workplace. You're standing at the threshold of an operational floor or even of an office, an agency, a hospital. And you say to yourself, this is the visual consultant within. What am I seeing? What does it mean? Have I given you these already? What am I seeing? What does it mean? And then you flip it and you say, what am I not seeing? Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. So that ability to move in and out of the affirmative and the negative, what is there and what is not there, gives you a, a very precise understanding of what the workplace is doing to help you do its work. And unless you've made a partner out of that workplace, it's not doing enough. It wants to help you. The floor wants to do more than just hold us up. The floor wants to speak to us. Use me. I can make a bigger contribution. I'm ready for glory. You have to give me a voice. And so you give the floor a voice through borders and addresses. You lay down the pattern of work. That is powerful and no less powerful than when the executive leader can put his or her voice into an operation systems improvement template, an X-type matrix, a roadmap, you know, can really speak through those physical devices. So the message is the message I intend, and I see that it's delivered, and it is received. Behavior changes as a result. And in that way, I just found out today, I, I, I found an Uh, an email from April that announced the passing of a great friend of mine, a great friend of all of ours. His name is Rick L. And he was a master visual thinker at Denison Hydraulics. And he did this fantastic visual conversion of his cell. It was a union plant, still is. Recently acquired by Parker Hannafin because it was just so super cool. They said, you're not lean, but you are so cool. We're going to buy you because the workplace flowed because it was so deeply visual. It didn't need lean to flow. It was completely traditional with piles of whip, and yet it flowed. It was completely transparent. You knew knew about that whip in detail just by looking. Anyway, he, he converted his cell and... And he said, you know, Gwendolyn, second and third shift are always trying to get in the front of the line to sign up for my cell. You know, they, you know what they call me? They call me the no thinking cell. <laughs> and I said, but that's rather an insult, isn't it? Because you're a visual thinker. And he said, and I said, well, what do they do if they don't think? And Rick said, they dance. They come to my cell and they do the dance of work, Gwendolyn. They yeah, dance. That's What a great episode. Remember, you can go to enterpriseexcellencepodcast.com backslash downloads to get hold of a visual workplace guide Gwendolyn has kindly provided. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help others gain insight and create a better future. It's so fantastic because it means that they go to work, they have the skill, they know what the outcomes are, and they flow through it, and they just contribute, contribute. They go home happy. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. They go home happy. They have a good night's sleep. They can hardly wait for the next day, but it's the same thing for an executive. It's the same thing for a supervisor as well, and I do want to insert something, if I may just insert 
because we've never spoken about supervisors in terms of where do they fit in the model. Well, of course, there's the 10 doorway model that gives the supervisor a doorway and it's called visual displays. But why is it there? Why do we use production control boards and visual displays? I'm not talking about whiteboards here, which is a very, very, it's hardly a kindergarten level of visual uh, information sharing. Visual displays are interactive. They serve a very important purpose because the supervisor can't lead, can he? He's not in charge. His boss is in charge. He has to be obedient. He somehow has to make that guy, that woman happy. His job depends on it. And he doesn't own the operators because in a visual workplace, they own themselves and they will execute what he tells them. But what's his job? So what the visual display does is it captures the supervisor's pain. We say to the supervisor, what's eating your lunch? Let's put it in a three-dimensional, it's actually more two-dimensional, but it can be interactive, in a three-dimensional form and see what's eating your lunch, and then you'll be able to address it. So it's so interesting because supervisors are caught in the middle, but they have such a powerful contribution to make to the visual landscape because where they're stuck is where the organization is stuck. If the yeah. supervisors, you know, can't do it on time correctly, how are you gonna how are you gonna get this stuff out the door, Charlie? Yeah, yeah that's yeah? it. Yeah. <laughs> that's where that is where the value is being created, isn't it? At that yes, that front yes. line. Well yes. it's it's such a powerful conversation that you know we go back to what you're mentioning with communication and that often leadership feel like we've communicated, the job's done. But every employee survey we get back says our communication is not good enough, so we communicate more. But there's no visuality in that communication. You know, there's something a, else the matter. There's yeah. something else the matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so then we create this visuality of what's most important, and that can be from you know measures, strategy, but particularly for the supervisor, it's being able to see the challenges on site and be able to help mm-hmm. unlock mm-hmm. those challenges. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you have an organization where people feel listened to because their biggest problems that they want to talk about are being seen and being dealt with. Am I on the right track there? You are on the right track. Oh, I have great respect for your absorption rate and your, 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 your understanding. You are really just such a pleasure to have a conversation with. However, I am going to insert a missing piece, and but it's Thanks, one that life. you're very familiar with. And that is, the the reason why the connection happens so solidly and congenially with congeniality is because the parties, the players, are satisfied that they have not only received the message, but also been heard. And we call that eye-driven. We mm-hmm. call that what do I need to know? Let me get control of my corner of the world, including for supervisors and engineers and CEOs. Let me get control of the information that I'm responsible for and put it in a form where I can, where it changes as the truth changes. How can I get that kind of immediacy and accountability? But the other side of the question is, what do I need to share? And those two 
questions when they become physical, when they become visual devices, means that you're not only receiving what I need to know, but you are sending what you need to share so the other person knows. So it's a it's like a happy marriage. It's going both ways. And it's very prescribed. It's very bounded. It's not that I'm reaching over into your territory, Mr. Supervisor, and telling you what to do and where you're failing. But we are meeting at the boundary line between what I need and what you share and what I share because you need it. So there's this automatic pull in visuality. The paradigm has elegantly absorbed pull as a major dynamic. It's pull, it's reflection, it's flexibility, it's ownership, it's accountability, it's language. How can we own our world if we can't name it? And how can we own it if I can't share it? I can't tell you about the sunset that I saw, you know, or tell you what really went on in this picture, you know, and what I was doing. I want to connect. So so we're back to Rick's doing the dance of work. You just flow. People want to flow. They want to connect. They don't want the barrier. When there's a barrier, it throws them off their pace. And then they have to name the barrier. Yeah. Instead of the outcome. Do you see? Yeah, Gwendolyn, I love it. Because Mm -hmm. as you're having that conversation of I need, I need, or I want, and I want it, and what do I need to share? I'm thinking of what we've just spoken about with the supervisor to the, you know, operator. That, you know, what do I need? What do I need to share? Because there's a Mm -hmm. there's a share to help the supervisor see problems and fix quickly. Yes. But I'm also really connecting it to different shifts. Like how often do you hear Mm -hmm. complaints and challenges? between shifts, day shift, night shift, day shift, you know, afternoon shift, morning shift. And that, that what do I need to share? And treating that next shift like that internal customer and thinking, okay, well, this is what I need through my shift. But then what do I need to share for the next shift that they can do what they need to do? That, that is powerful. Am I, is that correct? You are absolutely correct. And the, the next thing to talk about is what's the real barrier there? Because in my experience, perhaps it's similar to yours. It's really never the human. It's never the person who is the barrier. It is the structure within which they reside or they work or the lack of structure. So there's no way to connect to first shift, third shift with first shift. Many plants They've solved that by having overlapping shifts, which which is 15 minutes more of overtime. And it means if you're tied to buses, that the buses have to come, they have to come a little earlier and they have to come a little later. You can't exactly use the same bus without paying for that half an hour. So you say to the bus, please deliver the first shift. It's the night now. We're closing down the third shift and wait for the third shift. They'll be out about 15 minutes later than you expect. Just do that and let people, and then put up a kindergarten whiteboard and go over the things that happen. And people will be so grateful. They'll feel as though you have just delivered to them a fully functioning visual workplace. They are that hungry for the information. If they can't get the information, they're going to get very, very mad. They will either get angry or they'll go numb. A lot of people in my country It's kind of 50-50. They go numb. They're indifferent. They don't care. They disassociate. They disconnect. It's your problem, not mine. Go take a hike. 
or they become combative. Those people who are combative, for the most part, are simply giving voice to that which has gone numb in their colleagues. And it's heartbreaking when you walk through the floor and you understand they're just asking for attributes, for a schedule, for what am I going to do next? And their inserts and their chucks, they're just asking for what they need to make a contribution. You know, I can get very, very passionate about that. I think oh, I yeah. told you my father went to the Russian Revolution. He was a journalist. He was 17 years old. And so, you know, I grew up hearing uh, 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 capitalism and communism and everything was political. So it was a very, very lively uh, dinner table, to say the least. Oh, but Gwendolyn, that topic is such a good one to, you know, for what I'm thinking right now, because as you're talking, you know, a lot of the pain and angst that comes from all of us is simple things often, you know, it's, it's, where's the bloody bin gone? Where's, where mm -hmm. my tools aren't here. Someone's taken my tools. Mm -hmm. You know, what job are we going on to now? The last shift they did that and it becomes an us and them anger and fuel and fire. Yes. It really becomes existential. It's but, really but, a deep question. Yeah. But then you create the visual workplace and you have that conversation. What do I need and what do I need to share? And especially between shifts. And all of a sudden you can create visuality that the next shift comes in and everything's just in its place. Everything's just ready to I go. Know, know. And all of a sudden that angst and anger, well, that's actually, well, that's political. That's life enjoyment or not enjoyment because that anger at the start of the shift, that will hold with that person through the whole shift. Anger doesn't disappear. And they'll quickly. take it home with them. Yeah. It's so yeah. simple, but... Yeah. It's it's not easy, is it? You know, Taylor did us a great service at the beginning of his career and throughout his career at the beginning of our revolutions, our manufacturing revolution. But we were wrong to hold on to him as a spokesperson for what came later when we attained the speed, when we were able to control the dimensionality where we didn't have to be so hypervigilant, where we could in fact flow with, with the new technologies and the new workplace and the new thinking that came from after World War II and then in the 60s where people began to re-identify themselves as people of a country, people of a nation, people of the planet. And the workplace has to has to catch up. I think that we're doing a very good job in catching up, but the distance between the old and the new is so exaggeratedly obvious. You know, it's, we yeah. become impatient. We need, we need, we just need maybe another 10 or 20% more of a change for everyone to then slide into a new modality. Yeah. But but what I hear you saying is just ancient and it's hard to believe that you who are uh, who is a young man living in a wonderful young vibrant country continent Australia uh that you are coming across that because oh, big. that that needs to that that can so easily change. Oh, it can yeah. so easily change and it changes with the executive the decision is made. That's what's so wonderful about being a, an executive. You simply, your job is to lead. That means your first 
job is to decide. You have to decide. And it's decide is between this or that. How do I say yes to the few and wait to the many? How do I do that? If I'm not in, in, ensconced in that struggle once a week, I'm not doing my job because at least for the first year. And you make decisions in favor of flow. You just make decisions in favor of flow. How can I get this flowing? Yeah. I yeah. really fault, I fault the uh, marketing as a kind of dominant seller that marketing has been the squeaky wheel that has been greased and greased and greased. And I think in a way has drowned out the real decision-making for executives to say, what you said before, I want this kind of company. That's it. And it may take us a year, it may take us three, but I cannot pretend that I can lead this company in its current yeah. current condition. You're, you're it's made, very powerful. Yeah. You've made a great point there, Gwendolyn, because that is a dangerous trap to fall into in an organization, isn't it? Where everything becomes about sales and marketing and we're neglecting the thing that actually creates the product, that creates mm-hmm. the service. So while we're mm-hmm. pumping a lot of effort into sales and marketing. I'm not saying that that's not important and it's not needed to be not done. Not your field. <laughs> it is, but what? I, but you can't neglect the thing that's actually creating your product or service or that experience yes. that the customer has when they call into operations. Yes, yes. Because otherwise yes. there's a baseline yes. of customer experience needs a baseline of quality and performance and price. Mm-hmm. No matter how glorious you are from a marketing and sales p- mm-hmm. potential, if you are impacting a customer from a yeah, baseline of how does someone sound when they you talk to them on the phone because that person is upset because at the change of shift, everything was a mess and the workplace is not right or they can't find that thing or you call up and a customer's going, hey, I need this and that operator just can't bang, visually see it and give them that answer. Mm. all your marketing and sales dollars to sell that additional value and delight mm-hmm. is going to be mm. for naught because that customer is going to be like, mm. I see that a lot, Gwendolyn. And I also see the uh, companies getting blown out on price because they spend all their time on marketing and sales, which, okay, that can help you get a bigger price. Mm-hmm. But boy, there's only a certain percentage to that. <laughs> the rest has got to be, you've got so to have interesting. a because actually the marketing that I was talking about was the marketing of how change happens. So, so, but thank you very much for picking up on that because I agree with it 100%. It's definitely uh, a problem. It is, it's a huge problem. I was taking the easier route and just thinking about how is it that we promote the idea of change and sell the products in my field which is uh, supposed to be about transformation and helping companies get better. And I think that uh, I think that executive leaders have to be extremely well versed. I will say well read, but it can be on YouTube, well acquainted with what their choices are and and skeptical, you know, skeptical. Let people let pr- people, Prove it to you and then turn over your workplace to them. I think that we have to be skeptical buyers. Uh, I think executives have to be skeptical buyers to make sure that they bring a quality change process into their uh, into their company. You know, I'm, I'm laughing because just the other day I was talking to someone 
I've done a lot of work in, with a particular Mexican group, and and it's been glorious, but it has been so much work. Um, but the results have been phenomenal, and it just took us the, the usual two to three years. Um, I wasn't there, but I, I, I made frequent, frequent visits, and, and they followed a methodology that I, I had already tested. And I remember talking to one of the consultants who had was competing with me to get this company's attention on their next step. And I said, you know, you could have had this. You could have, you could have outmarketed me. Why didn't you take it? And he said to me, it was too much work. I didn't want it. Wow. <laughs> God, it never occurred to me for me to get rid of my clients because they were too much work. Oh, that's not <laughs> a good position. It is a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of work to change the very fabric, the, the 20, 30, 50 years that preceded your decision that things needed to change. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But there's no, you can't skip it. You no. know, you can't, you can't, there aren't any shortcuts. It's a long journey, isn't it, Gwendolyn? I often question others when they think an overnight change will happen with the click of their fingers. When does that really happen? It takes a lot of work to improve an organization that is steeped in historical practices and change habits. It's not easy, that's for sure. Let's call this an end to the um, episode and continue next week, Gwendolyn. You know, thank you so much for the talk today, for sharing your knowledge and helping us create a better future. We really appreciate it. Bye for now.